Before I start the study that I have come to share with you today, I, just, I feel compelled to share a, a prayer need and just encourage you to tuck it away into your own uh, prayer list. Uh, I watched or looked at a news feed this morning and um, discovered that a group of missionaries in Haiti were kidnapped yesterday, 17, including children, presumably for ransom, and uh, which has been an increasingly common thing there. So would you just pray for that? I don't know any names or even the mission with which they were associated, but they were just beginning to return from building an orphanage and, uh, and were kidnapped. So uh, we've got some brothers and sisters going through a real trial. Pray for them. And let's, let's just do that for a moment. Father, this, these families, we don't know, but they are brothers and sisters because they're there in Jesus' name. Would you watch over them? If it would please you, would you free them? Would you give mercy and grace to them? And would you change the hearts of their captors that they would repent of this act and turn to you? In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to be with you today. Uh, Pastor Jack, if you're watching, uh, prayers with you, brother. I'm going to set up our Bible study this morning by sharing a conversation that an airline pilot had with his co-pilot as they were flying over his home state of Tennessee one, one day. And he said to his co-pilot, you see that little lake down there that we're flying over right now? When I was a kid sitting in a rowboat on that lake fishing and I would see a plane flying overhead, I would wish dearly I was up there flying that plane. When I fly over that lake now, I dearly wish I was down there in a rowboat fishing. The question our passage today asks us is, how do you feel about where you are in life right now? Today I'm going to lead us through the last major teaching of a wonderful letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. We call the letter, of course, Philippians. Paul had planted and his team had planted this strategic church, the first church in, in Europe some 10 years before, and they had had uh, a very warm and supportive relationship during those years. The heart and soul of the conclusion of this letter is the idea of contentment, which is, in my point of view, an astonishingly difficult balance to achieve in a growing Christian life. What contentment is, how we get there, how we keep it, it's an elusive pursuit. We go after what we think is going to make us happy, we find out it doesn't work, and, and it's uh, often the case that we were happier before we started whatever quest we were on. It's kind of like the story of two teardrops floating down the river of life. One teardrop said to the other, who are you? I'm a teardrop from a girl who loved a man and lost him. Who are you? I'm a teardrop from the girl that got him. You could express the theme of the book of Philippians as joyful living in troubled times. It's almost an oxymoron. Most of us going through troubled times are anything but joyful. And you think about Paul as a Roman prisoner, he's writing this letter. And the occasion for the letter is Paul saying thank you to them for the financial gift that the church had sent Paul, which is something they did on a number of occasions. And so these last few paragraphs of the letter are not only about contentment, but also about Christian giving. But instead of being a letter about giving, 
because of some great need that the apostle had, and he's now telling them, you, you need to raise some funds. We could use it in the ministry here. That's not the message. This is a message to a congregation that already had proved itself generous. The message is not dig deep because we've got needs. The message is thank you <clears throat> for the generous gift. In fact, later, uh, Paul uses them as an example of generosity in spite of poverty when he writes to the Corinthians in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. The church at Philippi was a healthy church. It was a good, generous, giving church. They understood some things biblically that helped shape their view of wealth and finances and income and giving. And in the process of acknowledging that, about this, this church, the apostle laid out a principle that helps us deal with our stuff, with our money, and with our station of life in a God-honoring way. And that principle is contentment, biblical contentment. It's not an easy principle to grasp. And that's why Paul calls it a secret in verse 12. So we're going to read this scripture first, beginning in chapter 4, Philippians verse, <clears throat> verse 10. We'll read through verse 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. <clears throat> Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a whole series worth of messages in this passage, of course. And uh, so I'm going to pick a portion of it and emphasize today. Historian Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. has observed that our society is marked by inex inextinguishable discontent. Inextinguishable discontent. Our quest is always, what's better? We want a better job, better pay, less stress. We want a better backhand in tennis. And I want a longer drive in golf. We live endlessly for the next thing, the next weekend, the next vacation, the next purchase, the next experience. I think Schlesinger has nailed it. Now, if the secret of happiness is wealth and education and home ownership and all that easy living stuff, then people in the United States would be among the happiest people on earth. We enjoy greater wealth per capita than most countries in the world. But a, a Gallup International poll a few years ago ranked the U.S. 33rd in the world on a happiness scale. Having more doesn't increase our happiness. In fact, seven of the top ten countries were in Latin, were in Latin America, which generally 
uh, ranks pretty low on the typical economic indicators that we might associate with happiness or contentment. In fact, residents of Panama, which ranks 90th in the world with respect to GDP per capita, are among the most likely to report positive feelings about their life. Residents of Singapore, which ranks fifth in the world in GDP per capita, are the least likely to report positive emotions. Here we are in the United States enjoying so much, and we're 33rd in the world. Inextinguishable discontent. So I want to take note of some of the the signs of our discontent. One is uh, consumer debt. As of last year, consumer debt in the U.S. averaged... $12,600 per person, not per family, per person. Every man, woman, and child in the country. And that does not include mortgage debt. Discontent drives consumer debt. There are a lot more signs than those related to our financial situations. A high rate of mobility. Moving someplace else isn't necessarily an unspiritual thing to do. But we rarely stay in one place more than five years. And some of our moving around is fueled by a gnawing discontent that we think is going to be satisfied when we find the right place, those greener pastures on the other side of the fence. A high divorce rate is a sign of our discontent. We can't find happiness and personal fulfillment in our marriages, so we step away from our spouses and families, and we look for that in someone else. Almost never does a week go by that I don't hear of somebody who has left their spouse and their family. Focusing on our rights, we are very quick to claim that we've been victimized. We're not treated fairly. Uh, Lawsuits are a sign of our discontent. We're quick to sue those who mistreat us, not content to give those situations to the Lord. I'm not saying all lawsuits are wrong, but some of them are a product of our lack of contentment. Lottery spending. Millions of people spend money they can't afford on the lottery hoping they can win the big jackpot so they can get all the things they want in life. As I drive down I-135 to and from Wichita, I'm amazed at our new casino down there. It doesn't seem to matter what time of the day or night you go by, the parking lot is full. It's interesting that uh, there are fascinating accounts out there of the misery and the tragedy that become part of the story of most large-sum lottery winners. So there are many more signs of our discontent. We each have our own. How how many of these can you see in yourself right now? In the scripture today, here's a man who sits in prison because of godless and corrupt officials, is facing possible execution over false charges, is often hungry and cold, and he tells us how to find contentment. So let's try to figure out what he's telling us here. First of all, let's just make a couple of stops. What does contentment not mean? Well, it's not about being disconnected from life, and here's why I chose that word. The word content comes from a Greek word that means self-sufficient or independent, and the Stoics in ancient Greece and other cultures elevated this word to mean to be free from all wants or needs. According to them, that was the chief virtue. They also tried to be free from all relationships and emotions and and just basically indifferent to life's little problems and their big problems. But that's not how Paul is using the word here. Paul showed great joy at times, and he loved people dearly. He was not detached or disconnected from people or his feelings. 
He didn't mean the word in the pagan sense of self-sufficiency. I don't need anybody or anything else. Because he affirms that his sufficiency is in Christ. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So being content doesn't mean totally disconnected from people and circumstances. Neither is it complacency. As Christians, we can work to better our circumstances as we have opportunity. Contentment is not lack of ambition. The Bible encourages hard work and the rewards that come from it, as long as we're free from greed. Paul tells slaves not to give too much concern to gaining their freedom, but if they can do so, they should. 1 Corinthians 7, if you're not married, it's okay to seek a godly mate, the Bible says as long as you're not so consumed with the quest that you lack the sound judgment that comes from waiting patiently for the Lord to provide. If you're in a bad job situation, go back to school to train for something better. It's okay. That's not necessarily the kind of discontent that we're talking about. Or make a change to another job as long as you do so in submission to God's will. Paul was an incredibly ambitious person, but that ambition was very carefully directed. And you know, there is such a thing as holy discontent. Paul would not be complacent with the spiritual status quo of the world in which he lived and moved. In the Old Testament, Nehemiah had a holy discontent about the broken down walls in Jerusalem, even though he was half a world away. We should have a gnawing discontent with the spiritual darkness in our own community and the communities around us, and that's why we planted churches over the years recently. There are communities out there that we cannot be content with the spiritual situation in that community, and we're asking the Lord to identify another one of those for us these days. So what is contentment? Well, here's the basic definition. Contentment is an inner sense of rest or peace that comes from being right with God and knowing that He is in control of all that's happening to us right now. One of my one of the authors and, and uh, teachers that I have appreciated through the years is John Stott. He said this, contentment is the secret of inward peace. It remembers the stark truth that we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Life, in fact, is a pilgrimage from one moment of nakedness to another. So we should travel light and live simply. Our enemy is not possessions, but excess. Our battle cry is not nothing, but enough. We've got enough. Simplicity says, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. For the Christian, contentment knows that if we have Jesus, we have enough. When I come into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, I understand whose I am, and I understand what I have as I grow in my understanding of the Word and the promises and his teachings about what life is like now and my future is like. A lack of contentment makes me look at the world horizontally. And I see people and circumstances around me, and I'm never satisfied. The very first temptation in history, if you think about it, in the history of mankind was the temptation to be discontent. Adam and Eve felt deprived of something. They questioned God's goodness. Man went to his pastor for counseling because he was in the midst of a financial collapse. I've lost everything, he moaned to his pastor. I'm so sorry you've lost your faith. No, I haven't lost my faith. 
Well, then I'm so sad to hear that you've lost your character. Now, I haven't, I haven't lost my character. That's why I lost my money. I still have my character. Well, I'm sorry to hear you lost your salvation. That's not what I said, he objected. I haven't lost my salvation. So you have your faith, your character, your salvation. Seems to me, the pastor said, you lost none of the things that really matter. Contentment invites me to look first vertically to God. When I look in his direction, regardless of my possessions or lack or status or lack, I know that he is enough. And when we do that, we can pray like the Puritan who sat down to his meal of bread and water. He bowed his head and marveled all this in Jesus too. And then if the Lord had laid down on that Puritan's table a 15-ounce filet and all the fixings, his response would not be, well, finally... It would be as simple a thankfulness at what he had as his thankfulness when he didn't have it. That's the Apostle Paul in verses 11 through 13. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I, I, have, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So this is something that we learn. Contentment is learned, verses 11 through 13 again. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We're not born with it. It's not a gift. And our tendency is to look for the next better thing, the next experience, the next acquisition that will finally Make us feel content because we've reached the place we think we deserve. And that is fulfilling. And we don't want to put in the effort that it takes to learn. When we were living in the Dallas area uh, and I was pastoring there, we would take every January a group from our church skiing to Monarch in Colorado. And every year we had a few newbies along who had never skied before. And so we would tell them, when we get to the mountain... The first morning, please take a lesson. Get a lesson. Now, some of the older teenagers especially didn't want to take the lesson. They just wanted to get up on the mountain because as we drove in the parking lot, they could see these people coming down. They'd say, I can do that. And, and, and skiing isn't like that. It, you know, some of these natural athletes picked it up really fast, but you can't wish ability into existence, so some of them crashed far more often than they needed to. Becoming content is a learned behavior. Even the Apostle Paul had to learn it. I want to ask you a question this morning as we get deeper into this. What is the one thing separating you from joy right now? How would you fill in the blank on this question? I will be happy when I'm healed, when I get married, when I'm single again, when I get promoted, get raised, get a new car, get a new golf bag. Now, with that answer, whatever it is that popped into your mind, answer this. God may well give you what you put in that blank. But what if he doesn't? If that ship never comes in, if your dream never comes true, if the situation never changes, could you be happy? Could you be joyful? If not... You're living in the suffocating grip of discontentment. So how do we learn this? Here are a couple of observations. First of all, contentment is, is first a matter of the heart. 
being content isn't denying your feelings about wanting what you can't have or not having what you feel you really need. But instead, it's a freedom from being controlled by those feelings. Contentment is not pretending that things are fine when they're not, but it means living in peace from knowing that God is bigger than your problems and that He, over a period of time, works them all out for our good. Contentment isn't a feeling of well-being based on keeping circumstances under control. Instead, it produces a joy, often in spite of the circumstances, because we're looking to the God who never changes. Contentment is not based on what's going on around you. It's based on an internal source, a foundational trust in God and a belief in God's love rather than on an external source. Contentment is a matter of the heart. Um, Another person I like to read is Timothy Keller, and he said, I'm going to judge my circumstances. Listen carefully to this. This is great. I'm going to judge my circumstances by Jesus' love, not Jesus' love by my circumstances. How often do we get that backwards? Most of the people in our society are more like thermometers. The index travels up or down depending on the temperature of things around us. We go up when things warm our heart and down when it gets chilly. You know, a person who is happy... Uh, when she's vacationing in Maui is a person who has only a few days to be happy. A guy who finally gets happy when he gets his Harley has only a couple of years to be happy because it'll wear out, the fun will wear off, or he'll wreck it. But a person who's learned to cultivate deep down heart contentment will be a consistently joyful person while enjoying that vacation or that ride and also when they're not. Most of us would love to have what the Apostle Paul had, enduring contentment, a deep, satisfying peace and contentment that's rooted in the heart, not in the stuff or the circumstances. Contentment is always an inside job. It only comes from in here. It has everything to do with what's going on inside you, not outside you. You and I cannot change the world or control the world around us, but we can change and control the world within us. Contentment has only one source, and that source is a soul-satisfying relationship and with and trust in the Heavenly Father who cares for us and has promised to meet us where we are. How, how does that happen? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's what Paul meant when he said that. Contentment is... First, a matter of the heart. It's also a matter of the will. It's simply choosing to accept from God's hand what he sends and what he withholds because we know he is a good God and wants to give good gifts to his children. Even our pain and suffering he redeems in some way. None of it is wasted in his plan. As I prepared this message, I, I thought of our daughter Christy as... A number of you know she was married for the first time a few years ago at the age of 42. She had never married before, not because she didn't want to or didn't have opportunity. Lots of guys were very interested. But she sensed in each situation it just wasn't right, and so she would say no. And I think she came to the point where she was content to be single, open to being married, but content with what God had for her. That's, that's a very biblical point of view. And then God brought her a wonderful, godly, kind man 
a widower who lost his wife to cancer a few years earlier, and we, we still pinch ourselves that this guy is a great match for her and she for him. He fits into our family really well. We know he's not perfect, but we're still trying to find something wrong with him. And on top of all, the, all that stuff, he's a, he's a Dallas Cowboys fan. You know, so he's, he's good on all levels. You know, Marilyn and I had prayed nearly every day for years that the Lord would bring her someone. And when he did, we, we became profoundly aware of the fact that had she not become content with where God had her, she would have missed this. Contentment means determining to not yield to the immense pressure of impatience, greed, or despair and making decisions that end up being corrosive to the soul. It's a matter of the will. And we might think this was easy for the super apostle Paul, but I remind you, he had to learn this. It's a process. We learn from walking with God every day. Part of the key to the process is understanding that everything, major and minor, are under God's sovereignty. He uses all of our circumstances to train us um, in godliness if we submit to him and trust him. And if we fail to surrender to him in this way, we're going to be forever discontent, which means we'll be frustrated and anxious. Our freedom will be suffocated. We'll be in bondage to our desires. Our relationships will be poisoned by jealousy and competition. We'll sacrifice potential blessings by engineering a quick fix to our desires. Discontent has the ability to destroy our peace, rob us of joy, make us miserable, and tarnish our testimony. We dishonor God if we proclaim a Savior who satisfies and then live discontented. Is this hard to learn? Yes, it is. That's why Paul reminds us again of this key truth about learning contentment. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So let's trace the path to contentment throughout this letter. How do you get there? How do you learn it? What's the secret? I'm going to pick up a couple of scriptures that are earlier. The first Step on the path is to remember the cross. Back in chapter 1, verse 21, the apostle wrote this, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. When you think of Christ, you have to think of the cross, the instrument of our salvation. The cornerstone of contentment is the cross of Christ. Remember what Jesus has done for us in the cross. He's given us everything. Because of the cross, we're freed from the guilt and the chains of our sin. Because of the cross, our salvation is secure. Because of the cross, our friendship with God is possible. Because of the cross, our future in heaven is guaranteed. Isn't that enough? What else really matters? The really big things are already taken care of. God is for you. The entire trinity is for you. God the Father planned salvation and chose that you would receive it. God the Son secured it through his sacrifice on the cross. And God the Holy Spirit guarantees it to you now and for eternity, and he lives within you. The cross is the centerpiece of all that. Step two, let go of the past. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. If we hold on to past failures and mistakes and hurts, others or our own, we will never reach contentment. There's a key to this letting go of the past, especially the pain of the past. And you know what it is? It's called forgiveness. We talk about forgive and forget as though that's the great 
thing we need to strive for. But I, I want to remind you that forgetting, in that sense, does not mean wiping it from our memory. God didn't wire our brains that way. Forgetting means we work through the process of forgiving others and allowing God's forgiveness to cover us, and we accept that forgiveness. And we let go of statements like, I should have, or if only, or if they hadn't. True biblical forgiveness requires that we see the wrongs clearly, articulate them, release them to God, and then walk away. And we choose to live as though we have forgotten them. That's what forgive and forget means. Now, this process takes time. It takes some help. It's another one of those things that Paul means when he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. For many of us, contentment will never come until we release the past. Here's another step on the path to contentment, and that is to live one day at a time. I noticed in this text how Paul reflects on time, and he uses time markers and language frequently. Verse 10, he talks about how now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Verse 15, he talks about how at the beginning of the gospel, no other churches helped him, though they did. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. You know, on a given day, he might not have enough to eat. He was a tent maker by trade, often supported himself that way, and it's tough to make a living when you're chained to a Roman guard 24-7. So that day, there wasn't much. But then the day would come when he would receive what he needed and more, and once and again, it would come wherever he was, wherever you are. Whatever great need you may have this very day, God may fill that the very next day. It could be very different. Paul regularly went from brought low and hunger and need to well-supplied and full payment. And then finally, this step on the path is that you find your sufficiency in Christ. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's a great balance here in this phrase. I can do, I do stuff. I can do all things. But what we do, we do by constant dependence on the power of Christ who indwells every believer. And Paul used the present tense here, which puts a strong emphasis on the day-to-day continual supply of Christ's strength as you follow him. I can do all things through Christ or through him who strengthens me. This scripture, though, is the source of some of the silliest applications of the Bible that I've ever seen. Now, I, I could tell you today that tomorrow I'm going to drive to Kansas City and I, I'm going to tell Andy Reid, coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, um, I, you obviously need a new quarterback. He didn't do so hot last week, and I'm your man. You just give me a helmet, point me in the right direction, and I'm going to be your man. If I told you that seriously, you'd laugh so hard your cappuccino would come out your nose, and you'd embarrass yourself right here in this room. That's almost, but, but I would say, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's a promise, isn't it? But that's almost never the kind of thing in which Christ will be sufficient for you. So what are the all things you can do? Well, the Holy Spirit is teaching us here that Christ can give us the strength, the perspective, the faith to trust our Heavenly Father for the place and situation He has us in right now. 
author named Rob Kuban wrote a book called Christ-Centered Contentment, and he says, the Bible calls us to allow our convictions, not our circumstances, to govern our sense of contentment. True biblical contentment is a conviction that Christ's power, purpose, and provision is sufficient for every circumstance. I came across a little story that I want to share with you. We get near the end here. Told by global missions expert Paul Borthwick, he tells a story about how our perspective determines our contentment. I'll just read his words. A young man named Peter reminded me of a modern-day Philip. I stopped in at a McDonald's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I noticed Peter working the counter. I recognized him from our young adult ministry at church, and I knew he had just graduated from Harvard University with a master's degree. I greeted him and managed to get him to break free for coffee together. What are you doing here, I asked, knowing that Harvard master's degree students don't usually aspire to work the counter at McDonald's. Well, he explained, I graduated in May, but I went four months without finding a job. So I said to myself, I need some income to pay bills. So this is where I've ended up, at least for now. I'm sorry to hear that. It must be hard, I replied, but Peter cut me off. No, don't be sorry. God has me here. This place is giving me awesome opportunities to share my faith. I'm on a shift that includes a Buddhist guy from Sri Lanka, a Muslim fellow from Lebanon, a Hindu lady from India, and a fellow Christian from El Salvador. It's awesome. I get to be a global missionary to my coworkers while asking, would you like fries with that? Borthwick concludes, he laughed, and so did I. Like Philip, Peter found himself in a setting he never would have chosen as part of his long-term plan, but his mindset of living as a sent person shaped the way he looked at his circumstances and at the people around him. I suggested earlier that the theme of Philippians is joyful living in troubled times. And I thought, okay, what, what are... What's our experience of troubled times? And I think it's clear that the COVID pandemic has troubled our times in ways that none of us has ever experienced in our lifetimes before. We're troubled by our own illness, illnesses or loss, losses of friends or family. We're troubled by the actions of our government, whether it's this administration or the previous one. We have made our views of face masks and vaccination, hills we will die on. Am I right? Or we will sacrifice relationships upon. In recent memory, there, there has never been an issue which has so deeply divided formerly united people in local congregations and in families. We are deeply discontented with those who disagree with us. It's my belief that the pandemic has shamed much of the evangelical church by showing us how poorly we have internalized many core teachings about the nature of God's dealings with us. I have my own ideas about those things, but that's not the point here. As a Bible teacher, I simply want to point out a couple of biblical truths that will help us come to a place of contentment, even in this unusually challenging time. And I'm going to share them in the words of one of my heroes, the late J.I. Packer, who has expressed these better than I could. Here's the first thing that he said. Listen carefully or read it on the screen. The Christian, up to his eyes in trouble, can take comfort from the knowledge that in God's kindly plan, it all has a positive purpose, and here it is, to further his sanctification. 
I don't know if I'm subtle enough in my theology to say that uh, God caused the pandemic. He certainly has allowed it. And one of the purposes for which he will use it is to further your sanctification and mine as believers. Packer continues, In this world, royal children have to undergo extra training and discipline which other children escape in order to fit them for the high destiny. It is the same with the children of the King of Kings. For too many of us, these troubles have undermined our sanctification, not furthered it. In Packer's book, Growing in Christ, he says this, If you dwell often on the truth that God is Lord and orders everything, even the frustrations, for our sanctification, Hebrews 12, Romans 8, you will find yourself able increasingly, even in the most maddening moments, to keep your cool. And that is best of all. So I end with these questions. How are you doing in life right now? What's the reading on your contentment meter? Are you down in the frustrated, angry, disappointed, restless, dissatisfied end of the scale? Or it's all good, God, what you have for me. I'd like to do this or have this, but where you have me is good. I accept it. I rest in you. I can do this, Jesus, because you're with me. And your strength is mine. But I want to also tell you that Jesus will only be with you in this way if you have embraced him as your Savior. This is the gospel, God's good news of God's plan, our need, Jesus' provision, and the door through which you can access the riches of God and eternal life. These are among the gifts God gives you and will give you, if you're not a believer, to know him personally, intimately, and eternally. And you can receive him today. You can receive him now in an honest decision of your heart, to open your heart to him. Put all of your eggs in one basket, Jesus and his finished work. Father, we confess to our discontentment with often foolish and silly things and pursuits. Uh, we'd, we'd like to repent of that, and sometimes we do, but I feel, Lord, like this is one of our great needs. So grant us as a church a measure of unity, of spirit, pursuit, a holy ambition, a holy discontent with the spiritual environment in which we live and the needs of so many around us. Grant us contentment, however, that we will learn how to live in the station of life in which you've placed us, in the place you have placed us, in the relational network you've placed us, and to trust you for the future of that, if you would, if you would change us and give us what we desire, wonderful. If not, we love you and trust you anyway. And I pray for those who may not know Jesus as their Savior that this would be the day that they would pass from death to life because of faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.